This episode of Diffusion Science Radio is supported by you, the listener. When you visit audibletrial.com science to try Audible free for 30 days. Go to www.audibletrial.com science to receive your free audiobook today. Or make a donation directly on www.diffusionradio.com. The International Science Radio Show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro-seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. This week we have an interview by Mark West about the science behind science fiction films. But first up, here's the news. Remote-controlled implants to give women contraception for 16 years. The device measures a square 2 by 2 centimetres, and it's 7 millimetres thick. But it's designed to be implanted somewhere under the skin where it won't be noticed. It delivers a daily dose of the contraceptive hormone levonorgestrel, unless the remote control tells it not to. A thin membrane is opened by a small zap of current from an internal battery. The device is being developed by the Microchips Company in Massachusetts, who plan to start selling it in 2018. The device is based on timed-release chips designed at MIT in the 1990s. It's currently being tested for safety and effectiveness. The project is backed by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and was apparently Bill's idea. The remote control has to be close enough to be in contact with a woman's skin to tell the implant to switch off or on, and the signal is encrypted. The intention is that women wouldn't have to visit a doctor or a pharmacy to control their fertility, except when the doctor needs to adjust the dose of hormones using the remote. At present, the longest-lasting hormonal contraceptive implants use progestin and work for five years. Women using this can't conceive in that time without having it surgically removed, whereas the proposed microchips implant can be turned on and off with one click of the wireless remote control. I'm surprised that the hormone can stay fresh and potent for 16 years of storage, and I do wonder how the batteries get recharged, and what the safety systems are to prevent 16 years worth of hormones being released into a woman's bloodstream all at once if she has a car accident is tasered, electrocuted, or has something equally intrusive happen to her. There's the issue of what happens to the remote control, from keeping track of it for 16 years, to the issue of whether someone else, whether a woman's partner or even the government, would have control over her ability to have children or not. What if she's in a developing country and she can't get power for the remote? I hope they'll think of a way for women to know for sure whether the implant is switched on or off because near-field remote controls aren't guaranteed to work every time, let alone for 16 years. 
Many commentators have focused on the security of the remote control and the danger that the device could be remotely hacked by religious extremists or criminals. However, the biggest problem I see is that hormonal contraception has side effects. There's a long list of potential side effects, and different women are affected differently. For example, loss of libido, weight gain, headaches, sore breasts, and nausea. However, there's a side effect that might affect women's ability to have a healthy baby and a healthy relationship when she chooses to be fertile again. Hormonal contraception switches off a smell mechanism that women use to choose a compatible mate to father their children. More after the news. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Hormonal contraception switches off a mechanism that women use to choose a compatible mate to father their children. Women have a system that helps them choose mates who have a different and therefore compatible set of inherited immunity genes. This means that their babies will be healthy because they'll have inherited different sets of immunity genes, rather than two sets of the same ones from related family, and will be immune to more diseases. Women achieve this genetic analysis not with a swab in a lab, but with a keen sense of smell. Men with compatible genes smell desirable, and men with incompatible genes smell unattractive. Could bypassing this smell choice make it harder to have healthy babies? Research has shown that women who don't use hormonal contraception pick the genetically compatible guy every time because he smells good, whereas women using hormonal contraception have their mate choice smell system changed. So a possible scenario is that women on the pill or with an implant can meet a man, fall in love, move in, decide to have children, and then stop taking the pill so she's fertile again, only to discover that she finds her partner sexually unattractive. He smells wrong. Women on the pill don't ovulate, because that's the purpose of the pill, to stop eggs being released. Many different studies have had healthy men abstain from deodorants and cologne while wearing the same t-shirt all day and night. They take swabs from the men's cheeks to get genetic samples to read their major histocompatibility complex. This shows the genes they've inherited that regulate their immunity to parasites and infections and affects their smell. Separately, they took cheek swabs from the women to read their MHC genes. Then they had the women rate the shirts for pleasantness of smell. The women who were not taking hormonal contraceptives all found that the sense of men with different immunity genes to them smelled more attractive than the ones who had similar genes to them. This could be explained as an evolutionary behaviour that evolved to help women have healthier babies. But have inherited two lots of different immune-protecting genes instead of the same ones from men that are closely related to them. The women who were taking the contraceptive pill showed a random preference in some studies and a reversed preference in others. This may be happening because taking the contraceptive pill makes a woman's body act like it's pregnant. And women don't need to be selecting the father of the next child while they're pregnant. Being with people who are more closely related may be better for the survival of her unborn child. The suggestion is that although smell isn't the only factor women use to choose a mate, it's an important factor 
that's switched off when she's taking the contraceptive pill or using a hormonal implant. There's the danger that women using hormonal contraceptives, when they meet the man they want to raise children with, will stop taking the pill to regain fertility, only to discover that she's no longer attracted to a partner, or that she won't be able to get pregnant with him at all because he's not compatible. The women not taking the pill also said that the pleasant sense reminded them of their partners or previous partners. Other studies have shown that couples tend to have similar MHCs than if they were paired randomly. So the advice to the single ladies from the researchers is before you commit to a new life partner, go off the contraceptive pill or implant and switch to a different method of birth control until you've had a good amount of time to sniff out the situation and see if your home brain likes this man as the future father of your children. Does he smell good? Not only might your children be more sickly, but maybe your sexual compatibility and relationship might also suffer if the biological mechanism of selecting a mate is frustrated by switching off the menstrual cycle-mediated sexual selection mechanism we've inherited from our ancestors. But this outcome hasn't been proved by further research because the further research has yet to be done. If a large number of women in the world are persuaded to use 16-year hormonal implants, there's a chance it will change their behaviour and their chance of having babies when they choose. A good review of the different studies was published as Does the Contraceptive Pill Alter Mate Choice in Humans? and was published in the journal Trends in Ecology and Evolution. And now I'm pleased to bring you an interview by Mark West. Mark was an active member of the Diffusion team for several years before he took time out to have a family. He spoke to Rod Dowler from the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation, ANSTO, about their National Science Week program, Fact or Fiction, an exploration of the science in science fiction movies. So I've been um, at ANSTO now for four years, and as soon as I arrived, I had all sorts of people saying that, uh, you know, you need to do a travelling roadshow and, uh, you know, get out to the community and make them all understand type of organisation that ANSTO is and that's a, a major commitment um, in terms of I guess investment as well as uh, resources. So I looked around uh, for something that you know we could take to half a dozen locations each year but when we go to a location I guess you know we're going to be instantly appealing and uh, you know talk science on a level that people uh, like to hear it and um, you know I sort of started looking around to popular culture in sci-fi and so I came up with this idea of uh, running a fact or fiction show uh, just because, you know, I guess a little bit of um, research on the website indicates that there's a lot of, I guess, science content there and you look at it and you uh, can easily be confused whether it's real or not. Yeah, so it's really interesting that this is the primary or one of the primary ways that ANSTO is doing it. It's a nuclear and science, what's the, the exact uh, acronym? Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation? That's correct, yes. It's interesting that this is the, the way uh, the way you've chosen to do it, but it's it's very engaging. It was really interesting when I when I saw this as a podcast and, and then these kind of roadshows you're doing during Science Week. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, so I guess, you know, it is taking science to people and uh, giving them uh, a whole lot of uh, interesting content, uh, but uh, using those formats that uh, a lot of people are instantly appealed to. So, uh, you know, your, your popular sci-fi films, uh, dissecting those, 
to determine what is science fact and what is science fiction. And uh, it's a really simple concept to understand as well too. So it's good uh, in terms of our marketing. We've been very successful. We go to places and uh, we get our shows uh, booked out. And uh, you know, quite often it is just sending emails around and uh, doing Facebook campaigns that uh, allows us to get three or four hundred people to show up to a show. So um, in that sense, it's it's really um, yeah, quite uh, satisfying. Uh, because I know that uh, other uh, science forums that have been tried before struggle to sort of get um, half or even a fraction of those numbers. I hopefully will be in the crowd in uh, in Sydney. Okay, uh, good. <laughs> on the 21st of August. Uh, okay. That should be excellent. I'm quite looking yeah. forward to it. Well, well, we do divide the audience up into four teams. Uh, so there will be a, a Team Wookiee, Team Vader, Team Yoda and Team R2-D2. And I... Just hope that your team is the winning team on the night. Oh, that's very kind of you. <laughs> so, how, did, how does it play out on the night? What does it? What do yeah, we do? it's a ninety-minute show, and um, this is uh, simply uh, you know, watching some clips. So, we're looking at the technology that is in sci-fi films, um, and then everyone in the audience will have a uh, handheld voting device. So, we not only ask whether what you've just seen, say it could be a lightsaber whether that is fact or fiction, but we'll um, go a little bit deeper than that. So we'll say, uh, is it fact, more fact than fiction, more fiction than fact, or fiction? So it brings in a bit of subjectivity there. Uh, everyone puts in their votes, um, and so we can see uh, instantly how the audience has voted. And uh, then that gives us an opportunity of bringing out uh, normally an answer scientists uh, to provide the definitive answer. And we'll loosely use that format throughout the show. So you will be gaining points as you go along. And so, you know, the quicker you answer, the more points you get, that type of thing. We have some breakout rounds. Uh, so it's just uh, what we call fast fact fever, where it's uh, constantly uh, voting. And uh, at the end, uh, yeah, we're able to crown uh, a couple of people. Usually we have a senior scientist award, so someone over 18 who has got the most answers correct, and then we've got a junior Jedi. Um, and uh, I guess, you know, the whole voting uh, really engages uh, the audience. Uh, so when the scientist finally provides the answer, you're going to hear lots of cheering um, or, you know, some groaning and perhaps even filming. <laughs> uh, so, you know, occasionally we do have a answer there that somebody doesn't want to agree with, and so, you know, uh, we'll... So, you know, that can't be right, can't be right. So, <laughs> that, that's part of the flavour of the event. It's, uh, movies are sometimes, or have been seen to kind of lead science, I guess. I'm thinking touch screens, which is, oh, which is a, big, uh, a big thing at the moment with all the patents and all the rest of it. Are there any other good examples of, of that? Oh, yeah. Star Trek, I guess, has been a pioneer of, uh, of technology. So back in the 1960s, they were looking at things like uh, your uh, universal translators, also their tasers uh, were, uh, you know, things that are now part of um, everyday society. They even had um, push-to-talk type phones. So I guess, you know, the beauty of science fiction is that it uh, can look at uh, what science can currently deliver and then dream um, what uh, that could be like into the future. And uh, uh, people watch that and it becomes very believable. And um, what that uh, means for us, uh, you know, the general public, is that um, we kind of get a bit confused about what science has already delivered and what it may deliver into the future. As we go into the 2000s a bit, I'm kind of asking, where's my hoverboard? 
Mm. It's uh, about about time we we had one of them. Are we? Are we oh, close? I think someone wrote a song asking that. <laughs> I think that's true. Yeah, uh, we must, some of these things must be coming quite close. Like uh, oh, definitely. Hoverboards is a great example. Um, we actually did a survey um, when we started the show in 2011, and um, we had uh, some different questions to what we cover in the show. Um, and hoverboards was one of those. And um, I think it was about uh, 55% of Australians said, yep, hoverboards, absolutely facts. Um, what right. science has delivered, and um, I will say this carefully because I know that uh, there was a bit of news uh, a couple of weeks ago, but um, uh, we have had uh, uh, agencies that have um, you know, built a hoverboard that hovers, um, and uh, you could something like a small dog, maybe a chihuahua on it, um, and uh, it will maintain its weight. But it's not moving, and uh, if you put something slightly heavier on it, then it's just not going to uh, support that weight. So, you know, we still say hoverboards is more in the, the fiction uh, arena rather than fact, uh, but it's very, very close. I guess with some super... I haven't seen this particular study, but I guess with some superconductors or something, you could yes, you yes. Could sort of lay claim. But I guess the Japanese have got um, those magnetic trains. They do, yes, yeah, the maglev trains, definitely. Um, so it's just a case that, you know, I think the technology's there, but uh, uh, it's, um, you know, probably producing a, a hoverboard that um, can uh, have some commercial value that uh, be affordable for people. That's that, that survey was was really interesting. So, so about three quarters of people that you surveyed uh, thought that that life had been discovered on other planets, and mm. almost half people thought that um, cryogenic freezing actually worked, which would yes. be good good for Walt Disney and so forth, I guess. But um... <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, uh, that's a little bit of fact fiction in itself. Uh, that. Uh... It's common, uh, I guess, uh, culture that uh, everyone believes Walt is frozen, but in fact he's not. It's oh, really? It's fiction, yes. <laughs> oh, well, there you go. I had no, <laughs> I had no idea about that either. Mm. And even reverse cryonics is an interesting one. So uh, uh, when we did our survey, we've uh, dissected it based on states. And uh, uh, down in Tasmania, there was a much higher percentage of the population that believes in reverse cryonics, and uh, that's because they must on a daily basis down there live with frozen conditions and uh, four out sort of by morning tea or whatever. <laughs> they believe that this is, uh, this is possible, but everyone else uh, still isn't convinced. That's right. Not, not many people convinced in far north Queensland. <laughs> no, no, not at all. <laughs> that, that's, that's very interesting. I guess there's people, people, you do hear of people falling into lakes and then, um, you know, freezing or being really cold and then surviving, but I don't know that yeah. it's, I think it's kind of flukish, isn't it? Oh, and I guess, you know, reverse cryonics is, uh, I guess, you know, putting you into a frozen sleeping state uh, for a long time, so um, your vital organs are frozen. And uh, once they get to that state, uh, there's no way of microwaving them back uh, to their normal functionality. Um, they're, they're basically, they're frozen and they've had it. And speaking of the weather, one of the things the survey found was that more Queenslanders want weather control devices. Are, are weather control devices fact or fiction? Uh, look, I guess, you know, um, this is a very, very broad area. Um, so there'd be elements where you could say facts, uh, but, you know, generally fiction that's... Uh, 
I'm sure it'll be an area that uh, will have a lot of research dedicated to it uh, in the coming decades. That's right, Oscar. I've got climate change implications and seeding clouds and all that mm. sort of stuff. People oh, will be definitely. Oh, terraforming maybe when we go to Mars. Who knows? Yes, yes <laughs> yeah. Oh, I was going to say, as a part of the survey, uh, I'm not sure if you saw, we actually asked people uh, what sort of technology they'd like in their day-to-day life as well too, um, which uh, is a personal favourite of mine. Uh, so uh, we had... Um, House cleaning robots as a bit of technology that people want the most, and uh, almost uh, one in two females uh, voted uh, that as uh, their highest priority. Uh, so, you know, I guess we talk a lot about what technology you know, can um, deliver. It does come to, back to the sort of day to day problems, the jobs that we don't like doing that to almost uh, control uh, our decision making in this sense. That's, uh, if I think of the amount of time I spend during the day just cleaning the house and Mm. running after two toddlers uh, (laughs) and and cleaning up their mess, it's a considerable portion of the day. So I think that would be pretty high on my list as well. Yeah, yes. I guess I guess Ansto's probably got quite a bit to do with the brain with regards medical imaging and and that type of thing. Oh, definitely, yeah. I mean, um, we produce 85% of the country's nuclear medicines and um, if you need to be diagnosed for uh, a cancer or heart disease or other um, conditions, there's a good chance that um, you will have a scan and uh, will be administered one of our medicines. Um, for example, we make uh, 10,000 patient doses each week. So uh, on average, one in two Australians is going to have an Ansto medicine at some stage of their life and um, that's uh, ultimately or hopefully will mean that they uh, get diagnosed uh, for condition uh, in the early stages and uh, and can be uh, cured. Um, but um, aside from that, uh, we also have a life science institute as well too, and they're certainly doing research into things like Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease as well too. That's incredible. Like one in two people have some some form of nuclear scan during their mm, lives. Mm, that's right, yes. And... Um, ANSTO is a uh, misunderstood organisation that um, you know, uh, some people know that uh, there is a nuclear reactor at Lucas Heights. Um, they are unsure why we have a reactor. Some people believe that we produce power. Well, that's absolute, uh, to use the fact or fiction uh, theming, <laughs> that's absolute fiction. Um, it is a uh, very, very small reactor and safe reactor that uh, produces these nuclear medicines. And in doing so, it also produces um, billions and billions of neutrons, um, so the nucleus of an atom, and um, you can use uh, those uh, neutrons for research. So basically, uh, you can direct the neutrons uh, down uh, beam lines uh, or pipes, if you like, uh, and you can put a sample at the end of that beam line. The neutron will hit it and um, scatter or um, uh, diffract in a certain way. Um, that uh, allows our scientists to understand the atomic structure of the material. So, for example, you might have a little bit of a solar panel down one end of the beam line and you can understand how the atoms inside that solar panel are arrayed and uh, therefore you can adjust it and see if you can produce a, a better, more efficient solar panel. Okay. Oh, that's that's fascinating. It's interesting, I guess, because you can't you can't just put neutrons in a jar and take them to your local hospital. No. There's must be massive infrastructure involved in all this. Yeah. Oh well, I guess uh, at Lucas Heights we have um, some of Australia's most critical scientific infrastructure. So I've mentioned uh, we've got a research reactor and we've got uh, what is called the neutron guide hall. 
Uh, but there's also a couple of particle accelerators, well, there's four particle accelerators out here, which um, um, means that uh, we have one of the largest environmental research organisations in Australia. Um, so you can use nuclear techniques to understand um, climate change and the rates of change, um, but uh, you can basically pick up any part of the environment and uh, understand its atomic structure, so the amount of pollution there is in the air or the movement or even the age of water, which is very important when you come into water management. So we've got particle accelerators, we've got a couple of cyclotrons, which is another way of making nuclear medicines. Um, we also manage uh, down in Melbourne a facility called the Australian Synchrotron as well too, which is another very large research facility. So yeah, um, I guess um, it's a, a bit of an eye-opener. We, um, we encourage the um, general public to come and do a tour of Enster and uh, when they see just how much stuff we have here and the uh, amount and breadth of the, the research that we conduct, it's usually a, a bit of an eye-opener. So, so back to fact or fiction, if people want to uh, go see it, where, well, you're going all over the country. Where's the best place to find info and all that sort of stuff? Yeah, well, um, I'm unsure of your audience reach, but um, we are up in Darwin uh, for um, the middle of August. Uh, so... Uh, we have a show on Thursday the 14th of August. Um, the following week uh, we're at the University of Sydney um, and so that is Thursday the 21st of August. We will be um, at uh, the Sutherland Entertainment Centre on Tuesday the 13th of October and uh, down at Wollongong in November as well as going to Ballarat in uh, late October. So all of our dates are on the Ansto website um, under the events calendar and uh, our website's www.ansto.gov.au. That's great. Do you get to go to all of them? Uh, yes, I'm actually part of the show. <laughs> <laughs> that was Mark West speaking with Rod Dowler from the Australian Nuclear Science and Technology Organisation talking about fact or fiction, their outreach program for National Science Week. National Science Week will be from the 16th to the 24th of August. You can find out more at www.scienceweek.net.au and you can hear Mark on his own podcast at mrscienceshow.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions... Opinions, congratulations, standing ovations, gasps of amazement, and helpful suggestions to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. If you're doing something sciencey and cool, tell me the story and send me some photos. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Contributing this week was Mark West. Checking production this week was Charles Willock. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the Community Radio Network and 2HHH in Hornsby, Coringai. Diffusion is syndicated on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station. You can now hear Diffusion on Stitcher, radio on demand and on the go. Download the free app from stitcher.net and review Diffusion. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. Subscribe to our podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for more information about this week's show. 
You support Diffusion by downloading a free book from Audible. Audible will sponsor Diffusion for everyone who signs up to the free 30-day trial and downloads the free book of their choice from audibletrial.com science. That's science with a capital S. Or look for the donate button on www.diffusionradio.com to contribute to the costs of producing the podcast. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.